I guess, you know, we're making a distinction between, you could even say, institutional philosophy and transformative philosophy, which would be this institutional philosophy is this totalizing system that tends to create paralysis, actually. Welcome back to Voicecraft. This is an episode produced by the Voicecraft Network, an open session welcoming the writers O.G. Rose in the form of Daniel and Michelle Garner, along with many other Voicecraft contributors. Open sessions run once a month and are available for Voicecraft members and non-members to attend. This one was held in late November last year in the spirit of Freeform, a regular session type inside the Voicecraft network. Okay, here we go. There we are, thank you everyone. It's nice to see some new faces, or at least some new names. We'll see some faces later on. Good to have you back as well, Jacob, and some people we haven't seen from the EU time zone for a little while. So this is the first Voicecraft open session we've had in some time. I think Tyler will remember, and Jess too will remember some open sessions we had a couple years ago now, and then we closed up um, for two years all of a sudden. Of course, we have had people joining us, but um, number of us here have shared many dialogues together before in different formats and this is something that will be a regular occurrence to open up the access to sharing in conversation together and of course I think some of you coming along today will uh, know OG Rose and their work um, and you might know some other Voicecraft members too or have perhaps been invited by one so yeah it's, it's, uh, it's nice to welcome you all so the title for this session is Transformative Philosophy. Now some of you may recall that this uh, was the title of the course that was scheduled to run towards the end of this year, but it's been postponed till next year. But this today is a good opportunity to explore, I think, some of the essence of at least what is pointed to by that concept. I think there's a lot there. And one of the key elements from my perspective is that it's um, a pointer towards the relevance and importance of praxis and not only theory, context, not only content, which means in some sense we're speaking about something that might seem a little bit ephemeral. But that's why we have OG Rose along, because there's an awful lot we can say about transformative philosophy. And um, I think above all, it's invited as a context for discussion that allows us to get to know each other a little bit as we begin to grapple with the relevance or importance or interest we might have in being here and becoming together. So I'm not going to say too much about the notion and indeed the discussions we'll have together can flow and take whatever shape they like so we're not bound by some convention of needing to name in a way you're thinking um, I or we want but nevertheless there's a lot to work with here that I believe is um, of a profound sort of importance at least for those who hear the call of it so it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Mr and Mrs OG Rose Daniel and Michelle Garner thank you very much Thank you so much, Tim. We're so honored to be here. So happy to be here and so happy to be with the Voicecraft community. And for those of you who could join as well, thank you so much for being here. Um, so I'm Michelle. Daniel. OG, OG Rose. Rose. And today we're going to be talking about transformative philosophy. philosophy. So what's that make you think, Michelle? 
Well, I am really happy that we get a chance to talk about this subject because <laughs> philosophy has actually been very transformative in my own life. Yeah. Um, but I didn't always think about philosophy that way. Um, <clears throat> and um, it's, it's interesting to think about why it is so transformative for me and why I think we need to think about philosophy as something that can transform your life. Um, and the reason why it is that way for me and has been so helpful um, is because it helps me to, const to constantly um, rethink things. It's always asking us to, to slow down a little bit and, mm. and really think about what exactly is going on. Um, what exactly are we defining as a problem or as this, that, or the other? Um, I think that transformative philosophy is a particular way of actually utilizing philosophy, not um, studying philosophy to merely just accumulate knowledge, accumulate or collect facts or, you know, philosophers like Pokemon cards or something like that. But um, those are pretty cool. But, you know, um, basically, it's, it's a way to engage with the world that actually gets you more in touch with reality, mm. because um, there's something of a type of concretion that happens in the, the negating of your own concepts and the negating of your own ideas. And at first it can feel like, oh, that might be so destabilizing, right? Like, mm. oh, that you're, you're starting to ask like, well, wh why do I think that? Or what is that? Or, you know, starting to question the things that you never did question. But actually there's a whole lot of things that we often feel so certain about. And we are tormented by that certainty. We are tormented. Oh, I'm sure that person hates me. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm just certain that I'm doomed. I'm, I'm certain that I'm, I failed and I'm, I, this is never redeemable. And yet philosophy, transformative philosophy will allow you to think, well, wait a second, do I actually know that? Mm. What do I know? What don't mm. I know? Mm. What, what if I'm wrong? Right. What if I'm right about something that I think I'm wrong about? So for me, that's the power of philosophy. Mm. That's the power of philosophy. And, and when you really see it that way, it's, it's, it's explosive. Mm. I mean, it just, it shatters everything, mm. but it's almost like, whoa, I, 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 it, everything shattered around me. And now like, it's almost like you were just in this kind of, you know, dogmatic slumber, you know, sort of cocoon thing. And suddenly it's like, you know, this metamorphosis happens and you just break out of that, that cocoon and you're able to actually like see the light. Um, you're able to spread out a little bit, you know, and um, there's a lot of mobility there and, and freedom in my opinion. So that's what it, why transformative philosophy as a topic is important for me to talk about. So we actually understand it. Um, and yeah, what about you, Daniel? Well, I like what you're taking the idea of uncertainty and making it empowering, because yeah. very often we take uncertainty as destabilizing. But really, what's very interesting is if you start applying philosophy, say, to your emotions, to your relationships, to how you interpret situations, the very uncertainty of it is actually liberating, yeah. because a lot of drama and problems actually will come from like a certainty where well, you're certain that person is upset or you're certain you're right about something. Yes. And really, if something is to be transformative, it has to it has to change the course you would have gone on without it right mm -hmm. like if you're if you were, if you were going to end up at x and you still end up at x there's not really a transformative of y along the way to x but if it changes you to get into z uh you know you go in a different way you can say meaningfully that it is transformative and what's so interesting is often i think philosophy can be associated with a kind of um like abstraction yeah. it's not practical it doesn't really matter yeah. and oh you don't need to think about that so much you should just you know be certain about things the funny thing is that actually it's more practical to be uncertain because there's way more you don't know. Yes. And actually it's, it's, um, it's more concrete and realistic to not be certain. But the thing is that's so interesting is emotions always present themselves when you feel them with a certainty. 
Yeah. As in you're correct, like your, your spouse, you're, you know, they're upset at you or they're wrong or mm-hmm. people are stupid or something. Mm-hmm. And really, when you start seeing philosophy, the uncertainty of philosophy that you turn on yourself to question your own impressions of things, that actually is very good for relationships. I mean, it's, it's funny because like the very attitude of avoiding philosophy to stay practical it, it, it results in you ending up in these cycles of drama that you never escape. Um, and it's always like, oh, philosophy is just going to have you overthink. Well, it's funny. It's almost like you have to choose between thinking and rethinking and then this kind of hamster wheel thinking that occurs in drama. And really one of the reasons transformative philosophy. Well, and I, and I should say to me, and then I'll give it back to you. You know, uh, Dr. Lewis has that great meditation in the tool shed where he makes it, you know, he walks into a tool shed and he talks about this ray of light coming through the ceiling. And he says there's a difference between looking at a ray of light and then he steps into the ray of light and looks up through it. So he talks about looking at the ray of light and then looking through the ray of light. Mm -hmm. And very often from academia, we are taught about philosophy is looking at philosophy, like the history of philosophy or contra different things. But really when you step into philosophy, now of course Lewis is saying you need to do both. He's not saying it's one or the other, but when you step into it and it's how you see and it transforms how you see mm-hmm. and not just philosophy, but relationships, but the world and also that uncertainty. And then I'll give it back to you. When you start thinking uncertainty as empowering, well then there's mystery to life. Yeah. There's wonder to life. Yeah. There's something more to life um, that is worth exploring and looking into. And so the very shaking out of one's dogmatic slumber that you mentioned actually has this increased, this ability to increase beauty, truth, and goodness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great point you're making. And it's not like philosophy in in the sense, the reason why understanding it as transformative philosophy is so important is because it's a difference between like looking at philosophy versus looking at everything through philosophy, mm. which we already do, because in a, a philosophy is, we're all thinking, right? We all, we all, we all think. Mm. And so we, we can't be naive about that. Um, mm. And if we are, then I think we, are, we unintentionally can follow into the patterns of overthinking, mm. which actually rely strangely on a, on, a, on a very firm certainty, you know, of, you know, it's like a hamster wheel is very certain of where it's going to go. A hamster is very certain about where it's going to be and where mm. it's going to go. The uncertainty is where you don't have the, the little rotating track and where you're having to just now have mm. to venture out mm. <laughs> without that. And that is, that's actually very, very powerful. Um, mm. Mm. There is the existential crisis sure. that can come with that sure. because there's a sense of like, well, now I have to have the responsibility of making the choice to go in one direction versus the other. Mm. But when you understand that there's actually, that's, you know, there, it's it's not so much that it's like right or wrong, it's a right or left. There's a there's an ability to be able to go and allow, give yourself the allowance, allow yourself to mm. ask those questions. Mm. For a very long time, we've, we've never really, we've always been given the questions. You know, mm. for institutional education, they give you the questions, you give the answers. Mm. And then I think transformative philosophy allows you to start to think about what questions do you want to ask? Mm. What questions are burning in your heart, in mm. your mind? Mm. Mm. and allow yourself to ask them it's okay and Mm. to me that's the power of transformative philosophy Mm. well i mean if you're using philosophy to transform how you see the world then it becomes transformative philosophy but if you use philosophy as a subject to recite facts about then you're just dealing with philosophy you're dealing with a subject right i think it's also helpful to think of philosophy as kind of like health like you always already have health in the same way that you're already thinking Mm -hmm. and in the same way that like philosophy is the love of wisdom like whatever you think is true there's the sense in which you love it 
Like if you think something, there's a way in which you have an attachment to it, right? You cannot help it. So you're always already in the business of being attached to certain thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think about that, which can be scary because then this thing that you hold, you can let go. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, it can end you up on a drama wheel. So in the same way that you can say, oh, I don't have time to exercise. It's, you know, it's extra. It's just not something I'm going to get into. Well, the issue is you're still going to have the consequences of that you're still going to have the consequences of it. Maybe you'll get lucky and you won't have, you know, you'll be fine, but it's a, it's an investment strategy, right? You know, we all have to choose how we're going to invest our time. And if you think about philosophy that way, which is the art of considering the way that thinking structures reality towards you. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you take seriously too, that your brain is like a frenemy, it's constantly self-deceiving you. It's constantly trying to make you feel right in a manner that creates drama. It's uh, ironic. Well, then in the same way that your body is, tending to, your body doesn't want to use energy, right? Your body wants to eat carbohydrates. It wants to eat sugar. It doesn't want to, it doesn't want to run or anything. That's terrible. I mean, what? Um, so it's in the business of not doing those things. And you have to make a point to change that. And so likewise, when you start using philosophy in a manner to transform the self-deception or problematic certainty that your brain leads you into, that can have a transformative effect on your life. But you have to move philosophy from being something you study where you can recite you know, Kant's main ideas or Heidegger's main idea, Deleuze or whatever, to something where you say, okay, well, what does it mean if difference is the case where the signifier and the signifier can never cross? Oh, wait. Maybe my ideas of how situations are the case aren't always the case because I can never cross that divide. Maybe I shouldn't be so sure that Bob is wrong. Maybe I should listen to Bob. So yeah. now you've taken difference from Derrida and applied it to how you relate to someone. And that's where it becomes transformative because it's not, you're not just looking at the ray of light. You're now looking through the ray of light. But of course, that's going to require the, ex like you mentioned, the existential anxiety of going through, stepping into light. It's like if you're outside the light, when you step into the light, your eyes hurt and they have to adjust and it's like painful. You know, like if you've been in the dark and you step in, it's like coming out of a movie theater or whatever. Um, so when you step into light, it can hurt your eyes. Likewise, when you learn that you have to hold your ideas with not so much certainty, that can be painful. But in the same way that breaking down muscles is painful, it can, it can pay off, but you have to get through the pain. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's 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 quite right. And um, I think, too, um, there's a way in which it, it does bring like to me, just because we have children, young children, you mm. know, you see their curiosity, you see their vigor and their imagination. And I think that transformative philosophy should allow like does does revive a sense of wonder, a sense of curiosity, a sense of um being able to see things new again and something that you know it, it's just amazing to me because you know think you can you can actually like realize that all of these philosophers and all these people who write things and and create things like they're they're basically just like grown-up children like they're just they've got this 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 curiosity and they've got these questions and they're just they're just curious about the world they're just curious about the way it works and they, and they're trying to figure it out you know mm. um and, you know, it, it so like, I, I don't know, I just the other day I had this thought about like, well, what if I just like ran into Hegel at a coffee shop, you know, and it's like, to me, that's why I like reading different mm. philosophers, because if I were to run into somebody at a coffee shop, you know, and we just happen to strike up a conversation, well, like, well, what's interesting for them? You mm. know, what do they care about? Mm. Um, and I think like when we open ourselves up in that way, we allow ourselves to be transformed by the other, you know, mm. by somebody else. And mm. then often that is also a way in which you have a chance to also share the things that you might be interested in. Mm. And I don't know, there's just something about the fact that you, 
children have these very strong interests or proclivities for certain things, or, you know, they're, they're really, really interested, or they want to wear the same exact, you know, t-shirt for, you know, 17 days yeah. in a row, <laughs> you know, things like that. Like, I just love that. I love that they're just not, not afraid to have some sort of interest or, you know, uh, proclivity, and they just sort of run with it. Mm-hmm. And I think we should allow ourselves to do that as adults. Um, we should allow ourselves to, to, to just for, you know, have no reason. There's no why, you know, there's no why to it. We just actually just, we have this desire to read all of Roka's work right now or something, you know, you just kind of let yourself sort of be compelled and drawn to certain things. And you'll find that there's some, somehow there's actually something very much more to it in this greater, almost cosmic way for, Mm. for why you're kind of unearthing that. And that also is an access point to other people who might be interested in, in Roka or, you know, in poetry or things that allow you to create relations. And so philosophy is actually, you know, a transformative philosophy, like Daniel is hinting at and saying and talking about is very important, in my opinion, for relations themselves. Well, maybe also it would be so a few things. One could contrast transformative philosophy with deconstructive philosophy mm-hmm. and cynical philosophy, right? Like mm-hmm. there seems to be a lot of philosophy that you, people tend to associate philosophy with like deconstructive and cynical. Mm-hmm. Like you don't mm-hmm. believe in anything, right? Yeah, Where transformative yeah. philosophy is kind of an art form of being able to say commit to something or mm-hmm. to believe it is valuable or mm-hmm. to see yeah, good yeah. in it for its own sake. Sure, sure. And I think it's interesting you mentioned children. Yeah. Uh, when children enter a room, they bring a different mode to the room. It may consist of throwing, you know, the spaghetti is now a, a wig, but they bring a different way of being into a room when they step into it, right? Yeah. And there's something about when one is engaged in transformative philosophy, a indication that it is indeed transformative philosophy is that it changes the atmosphere. It is a mode that people into that transforms how the room comes together. But of course, we see that with cynical deconstructive uh, philosophy, right? If you enter a mood with that kind of cynicism, the room uh, is kind of heavy, right? You know, Nietzsche will talk about this laity, right? This playfulness and different things. And there's something about transformative philosophy that creates a different aura when people are engaged in it. And I think to yourself, I mean, if Johnny's talking about the breathing that he's mentioning, you know, if you think about things dialectically, like Dr. Lass will emphasize, I can go on, um, this would transform the kind of way you carry yourself in a room and the kind of aura that it was thus create. But of course, that is a quote unquote, and I'll give it back to you, that is a high order complexity relationship. It is not something that you can follow with linear causality, like a billiard ball goes across the room and hit another one. It is a cause and effect that is only seen as the billiard ball rolls across the room and you remember that you need to call your sister, right? And likewise, atmosphere is a matter that you have to experience to get. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing about philosophy. You have to step into the ray of light to see what's through it. Mm -hmm. The only way to see that way is to step into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think the power of like, um, like a course such as transformative philosophy is that like, it's, it's, you don't always, um, it's hard to navigate those waters without some sort of like seeing some sort of spark in another person that Mm. reminds you that you have your own spark. You mm. actually have it too, you know? Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think in a way for people who have realized, oh, right, there's something like intrinsically inside of myself. Daniel and I like to talk about intrinsic motivation. There's something inside of myself already that um, I need to just kindle really. And um, w- when you have that, I think there's almost like some sort of responsibility to each other to keep, keep that kindling going. 
Mm. And then to kindle the fires of those around us. Mm. And I think that that's the power of like a course of transformative philosophy, because mm. some people feel are, are like, they kind of feel like they're just completely in the dark with it, you know, oh, yeah. and they're having a very hard time kind of making their, their, their small spark a fire, you know, to really get the kindling for that. And I think that's the beauty of bringing people together and like just the, the, the sheer joy and, and gift that it is to, to meet people such as yourselves who are, mm. who are trying their best to, to kindle that spark and those mm. flames and to, and to share in, in like the the breath that you know um inspires and generates even more flame right that's mm. the oxygen in the breath into the fire that that increases the flame and, and the vivacity of that those flames so yeah i think that's the power of, of putting people into dialogue and putting people into um a face-to-face -face dynamic for transformative philosophy because we all sort of come with our with our our, our, our uncertainty our unknowing and our helplessness and yet that's actually extremely powerful like there's such strength and vulnerability there's such power in it and um and so that's like also the the small seed it's like from the whole plant grows out of it so right. it's just i think there's something there that's really to me that also speaks to the transformative uh philosophical aspect like what's so powerful about it to me is the, right. that sense of community. oh yeah well as we come to the end here yeah. of our window i i think for me it helps to think of philosophy as a field that is interested in the problem of motivation like um, motivation is very tricky. Like, how do you find motivation to live? How do you find motivation to get up in the morning? You know, mm -hmm. people talk about meaning and that's part of it, but how do you find meaning, right? This is a complicated undertaking. Um, it seems to have something to do with courage. It seems to have something with investment risk. And how does one control their thinking to take on a risk or to identify a risk that is worth taking or that is of value that is worth dying for? The moment you say that you need to find something worth living for, mm, you know, you're, you're that, that, that means one, you want to transform, right? <laughs> that means you're looking to transform. And then what is the field that you go into by which to engage into those things? Well, that could be religion. You know, people talk about theology, religion. Obviously, it has something to do with relationships. But then the issue is that no one enters a relationship planning it to be a source of drama. Yeah. No one enters a, a marriage planning to get divorced. Mm -hmm. No one pl plans to... Um, give their life up to a value and it'd be a deception, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So how does one engage in these things in a manner that increases the likelihood that the thing that they put their lot in with, that they choose and they believe is worth living for and that they motivate and will sustain them in that motivation mm -hmm. and will actually be something that is a source of truth, beauty and goodness in itself. So thinking about philosophy too, on the questions of motivation and the kindling, that self-turning wheel that Nietzsche talks about with the child, um, that I think is another way to think about it. But in order to deal with motivation well, one has has to deal with the art of thinking, not just the subjects of thinking. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I was, was trying to write down the question that you posed at the end there, but unfortunately I could not quite keep up, but it was a beautiful question and I have it. I have it locked, this question of motivation and the juxtaposition between um, our values and how keenly we can feel them and perhaps not even know sometimes exactly what they are but our relationship to self-deception and how that process unfolds itself in our lives better done with friends and peers you can trust and communicate well with i think so all right guys well we're gonna head off into breakout rooms now and take this energy on i have reduced the time a little bit so we'll spend 50 minutes in there there'll be a two minute warning so try to keep that in mind and um, give yourself the opportunity to bring things to a close always nice when we can do that with some consciousness rather than having it ripped away by this uh 
technological foreclosure. So, okay, here we go. As podcast viewers or listeners, you'll now be taken through to a breakout room with Daniel, Michelle, Adriana Forte and Tyler Hollett. Listeners may remember Adriana from episode 67 with Guy Sengstock, beginning the Voicecraft Public series on the masculine and feminine. Tyler has featured on several episodes before, as well as a live filming of a Voicecraft event titled Culture and the Meaning of Life, available only on YouTube. And in about 50 minutes, you'll hear a sound effect which will signal the close of this dialogue within a dialogue. A little abrupt, but there we go. Yay, Adriana, it's so great to see you. And, and Adriana, we were just speaking the other night about your presentation at the Stoa on the menstrual cycles and the, the celebration of the different things. It's such tremendous work. It's so great to see you. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it's really beautiful seeing you. And I was just... Um, I was just really inspired by hearing you both talk about um, transformative philosophy and and making the distinctions that you were both making. And uh, so I was I was writing down bits like slow down and certainty mm -hmm. as a liberating power, and then mystery and wonder and and all of that. It ties into the conversation of the menstrual cycle. So the the, the piece that I'm holding, the meta piece is mm. actually bringing back the wonder making bringing back the mystery bringing back the the um, the way that we live which i was i was speaking to you both before we hit the record button which is um just this notion uh, of trying to live in a way that's divorced or not trying to live but actually living i remember living like that so it's actually a felt experience i remember living in a way that it was i the concept of life was more real than life itself which you know what I mean? Like it's 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 a weird thing because I could I, I live in abstraction. So um I'm just I have these ideas of how life is and then but I'm you know my life with my partner is a mess or whatever it is like oh everything in reality is actually not matching my abstraction. So um as I heard you talking about transformative philosophy, it seems like you use philosophy to um to do exactly that, to see where these gaps are. And um, and I use the cycle as a pointer to, well, if we don't notice we have a cycle and we're women, we're living in abstraction, like we're living in a concept of what we are. If we actually don't drop in and, and notice, and it, and it is really uncertain. And, and, and I say that with a lot of love and compassion because for, for us, for, for everybody, but it is really hard to, to really embrace the uncertainty of the cycle in a linear world. So if the world is reflecting back to me that everything that I'm being is uh, not good, like not credible, not something, failing, failing the line, failing something, then I can understand why we choose abstraction, or, you know, or something else. Yeah. Well, so when just just before we turn the recording button on, what caught my ear was uh, something you said uh, uh, about low energy, mm. right? So this is this is what okay. So the, this is what always gets me. This is the place where I'm stuck at, so to speak. Is <clears throat> well, okay. So for one, I just I want to I want to take issue with the way that we're using the word philosophy. Let me just poke you both and see what you do about that. Okay. And because I, th I think we do the same thing with religion, we other it, 
in a sense, rather than it being uh, an emergent phenomenon that we're describing as a collective action of behavior, it becomes this, well, we do start to talk of it like a tool. And I think that's a little bit, well, I think it's reversing what it is. And maybe that that matters uh, about the way that we think about these tools and how they act upon us or whether we are the one that is acting. So I think that that distinction might matter. So let me, let me throw that in there. And then, and because I, I really like William James' definition of religion, right? It's a man's total reaction upon life. Like this is, it's just all of my actions because I come into this world and I have to make decisions about what to do and what not to do. It's yeses and nos, like all the way down, right? It's all about that. And the amount of dissatisfaction that I accrue over time is what is what begins to separate out this this other within me, right? Because it it represents like the like the the vestiges of all these things that I wanted and didn't they didn't happen, and so something has to be done with that. Like you, you it it accumulates. It's like a trash, and and so you have to do something with that structure inside. Now the something that you do with that structure of dissatisfaction that you build inside consists of two primary paths. You can reorder the structure within somehow right you can do inner work which is like absolving yourself or whatever or you can manifest change in the world outside yourself in the exterior right you can get rid of the thing that's bothering you or dissatisfying you or create the thing that you want or whatever so those two those two ways now when you can't like when you don't have the energy to do it what do you do well you you devolve into like the lowest power response to that and it seems like the lowest power response to that is the imagination. And, and especially if you have a very good imagination, what you can do is you can create an answer to everything that's ever dissatisfied you in your head. And that can be more real than the thing outside you. And in fact, if people come along that know that that's a phenomenon, they can sell you dreams that cause you to become captured by a whole organizational structure that utilizes the the edges of that monstrous collective dissatisfaction to make its own thing. Mm -hmm. And okay, so where does the extra energy come from to pop ourselves out of those low power states? This is where I get stuck. This is this, how do we actually transform? Final piece, transformative philosophy, as you, I think as Mich Michelle said this, it's uh, well, the, the adjustment that I wanted to move towards is it's, it's not the philosophy that's transforming us. If we're talking about transforming self, we're talking about doing it with, with what has come to us from other. So someone else has philosophized and I've read philosophy and it's the thoughts of others and they come into me and transform me. And so it is, it is other people, other persons that are transforming me if I'm allowing them to. And then therefore, once, I've, once I allow that to work on me and I transform in that process, I begin to learn how it even takes place and I'm able to do it on myself, right? I become my own philosopher, so to speak, mm. in that framing. Um, so how do you get to that point is my question. And mm. when you're not at that point, how do you interact with other people who are not at that point? And how do you justify both worlds simultaneously in a system that combines them both without negating both or either? Mm. And if you solve that, then we have a functioning modern culture, right? Like that's, that's it. So ready, go. Thanks guys.
Would you like me to go? Yeah. yeah. No, that's a, that's an excellent question, Tyler. And a few things. So, Adriana, one, I think the association of the way that we are describing philosophy in terms of um, cyclical time, uncertainty, more of the feminine is very important. I think uh, there's a reason why wisdom, Sophia, is female in traditions. And what has happened is there's been a certain um, masculinity of um, philosophy that has started to come up, I would say around the Enlightenment, and David Hume and the Scottish Enlightenment were very concerned about this, which are systems of certainty, removing doubt, systematizing, and making things work more like a machine, where you had a notion of science that was very mechanical, and that becomes tyrannical, because any that doesn't fit into the system gets um, sliced out, you know, it gets rid of it. And so what we're talking about, see, one of the issues too, to your point, Tyler, is that when we talk about philosophy today, we've come from such a background of philosophy being this creation of a certain system or a certain cathedral by which things operate according to, that then what Michelle and I, I would associate what we're talking about, one is like a phenomenology that would go to say a Socrates, would, would be creating more of the uncertainty, a would also, I would say, phenomenology, like the wonder at the very act of apprehension, like the very fact that you can look at a tree and say that's a tree and it be intelligible to you where you have this weird thing of making the word tree and the idea of tree overlying with the phenomenon like how does that occur and that starts to be like almost like magic that almost starts to be sort of like wonder as opposed to saying that is a tree and what else can i have to like control over so there's a kind of philosophy that is a controlling things as opposed to a philosophy that is steeped in wonder so I think that's one of the reasons why we've actually lost, I guess, you know, we're making a distinction between, you could even say, institutional philosophy and transformative philosophy, which would be this institutional philosophy is this totalizing system that tends to create paralysis, actually. And I actually think just to what Adriana made such a great point on this problem of literally the abstract notion, the word tree becomes more real than the thing tree. There's something your brain does that literally convinces you that the world is concepts more, more so than things. And that's one of the things that we found when you start talking about transformative philosophy, you're actually paying attention to the way your brain does that. How it has a way of making you one day go, you just start thinking that thoughts are more real than things. And you don't even realize you do it. You just subconsciously slip into doing it. And if you can catch that and stop doing that, that makes a big difference. And to your point, Tyler, there's like a big difference between the person who says reads literature, reads Faulkner, reads Hemingway, et cetera, so forth, and then someone who internalizes that and then tries to create their own story. And see, that's the movement of looking at the ray of light to stepping into the ray of light, where now you're going to engage in the act of philosophy. Well, the act of philosophy, as we're describing, is this ability to destabilize the way that your brain has to convince you that thoughts are the case, as opposed to creating a sense of, no, my idea of the tree is not the whole of the tree, the map is not the territory, thus creating a sense of wonder and beauty. And that creating a feeling of openness, and this is kind of, I think, a key characteristic to start getting to the point of society, it creates an openness to the other. It's, it's creating an openness to other people and believing that, in fact, if you don't know everything, then everyone becomes the possibility of learning something you didn't know or encountering a beauty that you had not encountered before, encountering a truth that you had not encountered before. And in that way, you transform your mode from one that's closed and self-relating, like a self-relating negativity in a problematic way like Zizek will talk about, as opposed to a self-openness where you are open to the other. And this I would associate with Hegel's movement from self-consciousness to reason. I call this the absolute choice, where you start being open to the other as opposed to close off to the other. Now, the million dollar question, and so that would what I would say on the individual level, and Michelle and I talk about this all the time. What is the experience that makes an individual move into openness to the other as opposed to closeness to the other? And then the question becomes, 
what would it look like for a society to actually intentionally engage in structures of spreading that kind of openness? And the first thing I'll say, and then I'll pass it to Michelle, because this is a huge topic and I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, the first thing I'll say to that is it does seem to have a lot to do with actually seeing uncertainty as positive as the first step having an experience it almost seems like you have to have an experience and i will talk to a lot of people that do philosophy who will say this they have like a traumatic experience something blows up they were certain of something and then it turns out not to be the case and then they start becoming more skeptical of themselves but there's like two options there you either kind of go into this nihilistic deconstruction or it becomes an uncertainty of saying well maybe i can do better next time if i just have a different way of holding how I think situations are. So that seems to be one, I think experiences of beauty seem to be a big deal. We're very interested in wonder as creating intrinsic motivation because intrinsic motivation also seems to have something to do with openness. And then the question of cultivating societies that, that can do that. Um, that will get me into topics on everything of say breaking the college monopoly on credentials uh, to create more opportunities um, of allocating to society, changing the foundational premise of value and capitalism from um, scarcity to uh, a dialectic between energy and creativity. Um, that is also going to get into something on the paper, say joy to the world to talk about um, the difference between a business cycle. So it's going to get into all that. I, I, I think what you're asking is a million dollars, but it starts getting into like the nitty gritty of like economics of say how education and certification occurs, how you can create experiences of wonder that create openness, which means you have to really believe in beauty, not just see it hanging on a wall. And it's something that you can reference and tell people your culture because you went to a museum, right? And that seems to be um, those, those, those different practices, but I'll give it to Michelle. Yeah, I love hearing from both of you guys, from all of you guys, from you too, Daniel and um, Adriana and Tyler. Um, I it makes me think about like if, how 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 do we how do we become more open to the other? We should first and foremost become more open to ourselves. You know, we should see we need to be able to to see the alien in ourselves. Um, actually, I think when we can do that, it it makes us actually much more open to the other person. Something that I feel like has been helpful and transformative about philosophy for me is realizing. Like if I'm like, just think about, just think about it in your life. If you've ever had to sort of like um, go through like, like a breakup is a good example. You know, it's, it's like, oh, like it's so hard to let go of this person. It's so hard for me. You know, and you're thinking to yourself, it must not be hard for them. Like they're just, they just seem to be moving on and like, they're just doing fine. And this is so hard. Um, but remember, like, just stop for a second and realize that there's always this sort of strange bothness. There's always a bothness. So there's, and there's always a reciprocity and a type of mirroring. I think it's really helpful to slow down, for example, like to slow down and then to realize it's probably really hard for them too. Why am I assuming that they're just fine? And I'm, you know, just in like a mess, you know what I mean? It, it's really important. Those are the types of things that transformative philosophy does on a very, very practical level mm -hmm. to think about how does this relate to actual, actual relationships. And, and, and like, you know, I think that's, that's something that like just early on in the process to start to realize like, why am I, you know, my assumptions start to sort of like under undermine those assumptions. Um, but I think that um, I, I really like this idea of the menstrual cycle reminding us about like uncertainty. I really like that, um, Adriana, because it's interesting. I think with the with the dawn of sort of um, some technologies and, and some sort of like uh, like birth control, the, the pill, it really wants to regiment the cycle so much for women. Um, I'm not saying that's like necessarily a bad route to go. So for some women, they need to do that. But what I, what I fear is that it, to have that be the default for so many women, I know so many of my friends, very young women who are you know just teenagers, basically just 
got told this is what you should get on or this would help you with your cramps or just they didn't really give them the full picture and it, and it basically hyper regimens like clockwork tries mm. to make the, the cycle like clockwork and yes there is a rhythm there there is a rhythm to it there is the ebb and flow there is the the things that you can discern in yourself but suddenly you become extremely disconnected from your body you know, and, and um, it, it becomes like, you know, again, it's just sort of like stamp in, stamp out. This is like the, the, the you know, the, the type of regimentation of the, of the cycle. Mm. And I think that's, 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 that fits in with this whole idea of like regimenting, systematize, right. enlightenment. We know everything. It's like, it's, for me, this is what's always so interesting is like westernization is like the light bulb, right? Is electricity. This is like compared, compared to the Eastern philosophies of like shadow and like candle flame, light from a flame and fire, right? The, the light bulb is a symbol of like, ding, I have this idea, but it whitewashes everything in the same light, in the same intensity. Mm. Everything is completely sterilized, you know, and this also has to do with reproductivity, this kind of a sterilizing type of effect, not being in touch with our fertility, um, understanding that there's like ebb and flow of fertility. But yeah, the cycle itself, yeah, there's like a rhythm to it, but actually in its form just left in nature is there, there's a lot of types of uncertainties and say somebody is just, you know, not on birth control, but they have a very, you know, very regular cycle. They know when, like every month they know when they're, they're going to menstruate. The thing is though, that what's, what's still uncertain about that is all of the emotions that go <laughs> along with that. It's very difficult to relate the hormonal uh, impact of the cycle and how much your emotions fluctuate, but there's also sort of a sense of like, oh, right. Like I, my body and my mind are kind of, are always connected. There's no question there for the female about the mind and the body being so connected. But I think something that maybe perhaps could be helpful for males is to remember like just a very simple thing, this too shall pass. So when you're having a time, you know, like your, your fertility window will pass, but it will come again, then it will go away, then it will come again. And this is the same for, I think men can really be empowered by that because when you're having low energy, when you're like, I don't actually know how to like make the leap to the transforming and like feel kind of victorious in that this too shall pass another thing low energy go ahead and listen just go ahead and listen to somebody you can do that with your eyes closed you can do that resting listening is is there's a way to be an active listener but it's much more you can do restful postures and be able to still learn and to still listen and to sort of be uh embraced by the words and the vocalization of another person um so i think that to me it's almost like be open to listening because then you can actually almost like tied yourself over in your low energy and sort of use this as like um, a time to accumulate some, not accumulate knowledge like Pokemon cards, right? But accumulate um, sort of an energy, sort of like a, a, a learning about another person and letting them have a time to share what's on their heart, mind or their experience. And then that actually like can jettison you into like, oh, wow, I like that made me think of this where I had this connection or that relates to my life in this way and I learned something from them. So I hope... I, I think I hope that that can, can kind of like po possibly think about this idea of like trying to bridge here what I'm hearing as like a masculine struggle with this question of the transformative philosophy and then the woman's struggle in the having to accept her own uncertainty um, and the ebbs and the flows. It's not regimentation. There's no there's nothing regimented about life. You know, <laughs> it's like weird. It's like, yes, we have seasons. That's the thing. We have rhythms. It's much more musical. Mm. You know, it's musical, but it's not it's not like it's not clockwork. Well, well, and I'll just add, and then pass it to whoever wants to speak. It seems as if there's a danger of assuming that making it regiment is good, but there's also a danger in assuming that technology is bad, yeah. right? This is, but the, the moment, but the moment you say that, where there's good to both, yeah. then you have to think about the proportion. 
the proportion is not given and the proportion can change per situations. And now you're in the business of thinking. Yeah. Um, I think I was also going to note, it's interesting to think that also if philosophy like um, is this kind of cultivation of an incubation of something inside of oneself that is alive and that you're honoring, well, that goes as feminine pregnancy yeah, and that's child, the child. And <laughs> that's the other I also thing. did yeah. want to comment on the low energy thing because I think that's very important yeah. I think I think this is where eastern philosophy is in fact important there are many martial arts that are about low energy not exerting actually using the force of pre-existing things to go through you see Tanagasi and praise of shadows there's more of an idea of the pre-existing environment and honoring that environment as opposed to controlling it um, yeah. you see in religion and nothingness with the Nishanti it's sort of so for me like there's a big difference when we talk about philosophy if you have low energy start with the most foundational thing like the room you are in like michelle was just saying you're low energy don't worry about reading Kant. don't worry about hegel like it's very funny i never started like thinking or like i guess what people would call philosophy i didn't call it philosophy when i was walking in the woods as like 12 years old i was just taken by the wonder of the forest it's like what is this tree like what is it like start with the question of how is it my brain presents this bookcase to me like isn't that wild that i can experience color and shapes huh wait a minute, if I'm able to experience colors and shape, what does that say about the what my brain is capable of? What does that say about how I experience? And you start from this place of what is already in your immediacy. And that's why I think the foundation of philosophy, one of the great mistakes, and I'll pass it to whoever wants to speak, is when you skip phenomenology, yeah. when you skip the step of the raw apprehension and you go straight to oh, what's the difference between things in themselves and appearance? Oh, what's true justice versus whatever? Well, that's a high energy game. Yeah. And you've not even been convinced that you should invest that high energy. So starting with the raw apprehension or the wonder what Socrates was good at of making people realize that they're willing to throw their dad in jail for like breaking a crime and yet they don't even know what justice is. Socrates is like, well, what do you mean by justice? I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm living my life with such radical certainty that I'm doing the right thing and I can't even like define these basic <laughs> terms. Yeah. Like that is the realm of, you know, what I'm associated with the low energy mm -hmm. philosophy. And that's why I think, and I'll pass it to whoever want to speak, skipping the phenomenological, the skipping the, 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 embodiment. the embodiment, the presence, the apprehension and thinking about like just paying attention to the way thought moves in your own head and structures things how it has a tendency to convince you that the word water is water <laughs> in this weird way that words and ideas are things paying attention to that that is i think what you start and then you go um you go from there but so that that would be one thought i have oh i feel compelled to to share some things but there's so many thoughts that came uh and and it's bringing again the slowing down for me because i'm going i wish we could be here for six hours so we could actually really, really do this in a way because I noticed that I, uh, yeah, it takes time. I get I get washed by your words and I notice like an opening. It's like a key, like a, a, an energetic key, like it opens something in me. And then, but then sometimes the, the thoughts can keep up at the same time. Um, so, but one thing, a couple of things that you were, well, so many things, but one is about the energy and the low energy, and again, um, reminded of, of the menstrual cycle, but I mean, the lowest point in energy is so it's fertile in a different way. There's so much potential, you know, the, 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 the best winter produces the best spring. So when everything is dormant in my garden, really, truly, there is so much happening under the soil. So I think there's that slowness. And I think that there's the, a shifting. I, I love how philosophy invites you to shift the thinking. And I'm thinking, 
inconvenience what about everything that we think is inconvenient if I go like what what if that's the point if actually that's the point is not go beyond that but that's that's it so if there is slow energy then what if I just really let it take over me and 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 be um taken taken by the the slow tide you know how um I noticed just now that for example I came back from London just recently and my body was so activated um, and I quit coffee, but I just, I didn't want to quit coffee. The thought of quitting coffee, I, I could never, cause I was addicted to it. And then, but my body quit coffee. My body was like, I can't do it now. And then what I'm experiencing now is a type of slowness that I actually didn't have access to for a, for a couple of years which is like I can feel the waters in my system in a different way. And it's like there's no there's a drive that's not there, that it's different. So and, and I'm also taken to the arrows, the notion of arrows, so the life force and and, um, you know, just the, the movements, the ebbs and flows of that arrows, you know, what's doing in the seasons and what's doing in me and in you and in us here and um. And then the last piece that I just wanted to bring in is the nervous system. Like something that comes up for me is like all these incredible questions. And when you were talking, um, Daniel, about you as a child wondering, you know, just to be in relationship with a tree and not with the concept of tree requires a nervous system that can take in the tree, that can take in other people, that can take in, you know, in relationships when the mess starts to happen, the mess being, you know, people getting triggered or whatever it is, if my nervous system can actually take that in and it, let it inform me and being relationship to that with curiosity, then I think that's the, what you're, it's almost a prerequisite as I'm understanding it for the transformative philosophy, because a tight nervous system can't do that. So then I'm thinking, well, the world we live in is the result of thoughts. There are thoughts from overactivated nervous systems there are, you know, in some way have to disconnect because it's too painful to be in relationship to life because it takes a lot out of me with with the mystery. You know, it just requires much more to 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 not walk around with frames. That's easier, you know, in, in some way if I'm just completely um, in pain, I suppose. So that's where it, it takes me is that the pain. And uh, and then Michelle, when you were talking about the cycles and all of that, what I think is, well, the amount of women that are in pain of the disconnection, I mean, with this, not knowing they're in pain, not knowing, because of course, being suspended from your experience um, is a type of pain. And then at some point, and it often lands in menopause, that's when it happens, then the, then, then the pain that the all the questions you haven't asked come, you know, and the, the emotions, the landscape, all these emotions come. And then again, we don't have capacity to deal with them because it's a whole lifetime of emotions. And then we just put the, have another medication, which again, it serves the purpose of, you know, keeping us coping. But I love because what you're inviting in is a creative world, is a world of possibilities and creativity and engagement, which is, um, if I look at the world out there, not that many people have the capacity to to do at this at this point, and it, um, it makes me wonder again, like what's maybe it's with children, maybe it is keeping the the aliveness of children a way to start and.
Yeah. So what is it like to be slow? Uh, one question I would have is what kind of exploration we could make on the notion of pace, which is attempting to find the, I mean, because the slow and fast are relative, are relative. So exploring what the right speed is seems well, it's an integral part of how we're experiencing all of it, is that push and pull. And I think that, well, it, it seems like to me to ask a question is the highest uh, demand of energy, in a sense. Because, it, you know, on the other side of every question is the infinite and the eternal. So, like, you can follow that thing forever. And I think that partly what's occurring in this world, and especially now that we've connected all of us together by, by sight and by sound, is that there's no longer an appropriate um, gradient, let's call it. And so uh, our signals that we rely upon for how to traverse this incredibly complicated thing called life is getting blown out continuously by questions we're not prepared to answer. So the low power state is like a, a lower pace. So for instance, um, in, in terms of framing this and then the economic inequality aspect, right? if I'm blissfully unaware and all the people around me are blissfully unaware that we're below the poverty line, according to the UN, there's nothing which is agitating us towards this question of, am I doing things right? Am I doing things wrong? But if I get piped daily images of enormous wealth getting abused by lavish expenditures on nothings, uh, this question is posed, am I doing it right? Are they doing it right? And all these questions. And then now you have no, you have no real way to answer them. And that, the deep need to answer that question, it's suddenly flung upon you, right, by the the alternate lifestyles of those around you. So it's something about recovering some kind of gradient, something which limits the network in some way so that we're not exposing the undeveloped to the needs of the developed, something like that. We have this intuitive uh, sense anyways, but anyhow, um, I think we're always getting transformed. I think we live in a soup of everyone else's philosophies. I kind of see them in my mind's eyes, like crocheted blankets of influence that kind of flop around people, like depending on how influential they are, their blanket is spread out further and longer through time, but that's what it is. And you, you try to really imagine that it's just a lot of blankets piled on top of each other. <laughs> a lot of people with competing ideas and concepts and they're, They've literally created our language. Most of our words that we have are from these thoughts created by philosophers and then utilized as further tools conceptually by people in less and less distinct ways. It's a fascinating, like, well, that, that's an alleyway not to explore for now, perhaps, but the way that language transforms itself is a reflection of how we transform, right? And that, that need... Uh, 
Well, that need is a relational one. So even before the conceptual is trust. You need to be able to trust uh, because you know how much extra energy it takes to have to discern trust. It's incredible. It's too much. I just get angry and frustrated and I fight all the time. It's too much. No, that, that's what I was saying. You know, I always think it's very important that, um, and Raymond has spoken on this, which is magnificent, Raymond K. Hessel on his channel, on the notion that it's always, it's very interesting that in Plato's Republic, there's a whole lot of talk about the gymnasium and wrestling and physical exercise. And then you'll see in religion, Sabbaths and rest days. And then you can even look at 18th century English poem, poetry where sleeping is the gold in my brow will come upon the golden bed and rest is something to praise. And now sleep is for the weak, following Miss Thatcher, <laughs> like sleep is bad. And there seems to have been a much, like I'm always interested by the, the structure of the Republic um, in that it's like this, there's this idea that you have to have a certain level of health or otherwise you're not going to be able to go through on philosophy, right? Um, and there's more of an awareness of that or you have this, you need a day to, to rest, you know, and that rest is actually holy. And so once we've removed that, which I think a lot of the, one can speak of the industrial revolution, the speed culture, the speed drunk culture that you have, there's no possibility of gradient. Um, most, you know, basically in our, we'll talk all the time about how autonomous everything is bad. If you only have speed in your thinking, that's a problem. But if you only have slowness in your thinking, it's a problem. It's always a kind of gradient. Well, then you're in the business of proportion. And if you're in the business of proportion, you have to think about what is that proportion. And that's where everything gets tricky. That's where you have to be aware and paying attention to yourself and the way that you carry yourself in the world. Um, but in order to get that sort of slowness that seems important, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to turn down maybe certain jobs or certain things so that you can have the space to actually get the right balance between speed and slowness. But if you're, but you would never even think that you should make such a sacrifice for philosophy if your only notion of philosophy is deconstructed philosophy. If you have no sense of philosophy as phenomenological or transformative, then why would you ever sacrifice, say, some of your career or your time or whatever to do that thing? Right? Why would you prioritize it? So, you know, for me, making that case that there is a form of philosophy that is positive and transformative is really important. The other thing I'll say about it is when you're in a very interconnected world, you know, McLuhan talks about the global village or whatever, I really like that book, then you are being bombarded with images and information. The problem is, information does not tell you what it means, you have to interpret it. Well, the moment you're interpreting it, you're doing it according to ideas, and you are therefore doing it in line with a worldview, and therefore you're using philosophy. And the problem is information tends to be framed. The moment X information is presented to you versus Y information, that in of itself has a message, even if it's objective. The very fact that X story is told to you versus Y then makes you toward things. And if you don't have mental exercises of asking, should does this apply to me? How is this being interpreted? Then the likelihood of, say, you getting swept up into something and to maybe a way of thinking or philosophy that you don't want to be swept up in is much, much higher. And the point, and then I'll pass it to everyone to speak, I think, you know, you are going to have a philosophy, just like you said, you're always in the middle of the secondhand smoke that Rand will talk about, have ideas. And if you don't take the time to think about it, you are just going to absorb them right? And if you exist in a world where most philosophy is systematizing, most news is polarizing, much notion, many ideas of beauty reduce it to pleasure, uh, wonder just becomes a something you can do on the weekend, well, you're going to absorb that, you're going to live that. And yeah, it's going to transform you, 
but is that a transform transformation you want? For me, the language I like to use is that's going to cause you, like determinate, it's going to push you into that way of life where transformative is where you step in and you have a creative act and you go in Z direction when you would have just been called into X direction, right? But it's exactly right. Like the point you're making that you're already being changed. Well, that's exactly why there's imperative to take this stuff seriously. Like you can't not be transformed in a sense to, towards something. So do you want to just have the strategy of you just let yourself get carried away? Or, you know, in, in some respects, I always consider philosophy kind of a conservative strategy in the sense of I don't want to just let something carry me into a way of life. I want to like take some time to make sure that what I think and where I'm going and how I apprehend the world is the way that I would like to apprehend it. Well, then you have to think about it, right? So to me, it, it's, it's to increase the likelihood that you're taking in the world and you're living in the world in, in a manner that you'll, that you'll be, that you'll want to live. Yeah, that was really good, Daniel. Um, it, it I, two questions kind of came to mind, like one for you, Tyler, one for you, Adriana, um, because I was thinking Tyler, when you're talking about the blankets, um, what, what, what do you, what would you say? Like, and I think it's true to the point you just made Daniel, that it's like, we're already in a land of blankets. Like we're already being transformed. Yeah. Um, what what what's the best way to navigate that because you know blankets do keep you warm when it's cold right, right? but too many and you're suffocating right so what's like the best way in your opinion to navigate that and then for adriana when you touched on this really briefly with this idea of abstraction and reality like something that almost haunts me is the fact that like i'm probably like all of us in inevitably sometimes participate in contradictions of even things we part even things that we believe in or participate in we, we somehow end up somewhere, there's very easy to find some sort of contradiction somewhere. And that scares me a bit because it's almost like, well, is that mean we're just not being like fully aware of what we're doing? Or um, I think that's partly to the blanket point actually, because it's like to someone else, they look in and they say, oh, well, you're doing X amount of this. And that seems to be really important to you. Why can't you use X amount of time doing this other thing that should also be important to you or that you do claim to be important, but you don't seem to be putting your time into it, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can see what I'm saying here. So, cause you mentioned sort of this idea of like, you know, things be a mess with your partner or your relationships but like you've got ideas of how things could be or should be um and so for you adriana i was kind of wondering if you feel that tension and how how to navigate perhaps what we could call contradiction or the sense of like oh wait maybe i i believe one thing but for whatever reason some of my most like beloved re relationships seem to be the areas where i'm not actually able to like apply that as much or realize how to unlock certain things there um so that's my question for for both of you and you can decide what order you want to answer but i wanted to kind of i wanted to kind of get specific oops with my uh, questions for you guys on some of the things you brought up so yeah you want to go tyler here you go i'm gonna me well you're already unmuted go for it take it okay um yes thank you thank you for the question um Oh, I um, I think that the notion of contradiction is such a thank you, Michelle, for the question first. And, and it's like I'm aware of the time, so I'm aware of the clock ticking. So I'm just bringing this here because I'm like, oh, I'm not sure how to tackle this. It's I suppose it's um, I'm always just my commitment. So my commitment uh, to life is to um, maybe not be curious yes it is be curious but maybe be just alert 
like if like alert to all where the energy is not flowing in my life it's like if the hose of love is interrupted in whatever in relationships in my house if there's something that's contracting me so i just so there's a, a commitment to leaning into discomfort i suppose and 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 I, I that ties again with the menstrual cycle because it actually I mean when you lean into the discomfort in my experience it opens up so um, like I can give examples of my relationship with my partner or there's so many bits in which I, I could see that you know um, if I spend time in these shiny things over here life is golden there's a golden reciprocity over here. But here's a bit like I don't want to spend much time here because this is like a bit like edgy and uncomfortable. And then I go like this. So this this leaning towards and going like, no, let's let me have a conversation over here. Let me spend time over here. Let me double the amount of, of time over. So for me, even having these public conversations started through leaning into the discomfort. It wasn't the easy bit. It was the hard bit. Um, so, so that's um, one thing. And I, I, I was just, oh, no, I'll pass it to Tyler. It's the time is, is collapsing, but I just, yeah, loved, um, dialoguing with all of you. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure as it, as it always has been. And that is an interesting, uh, observation, let's call it right. So that, for whatever reason, the the way that we feed each other can be more or less easy, right? So sometimes we run into someone that's incredibly difficult for us to receive their resources, right? To receive them as a being which interacts well with ours. And other times it's just natural. It just comes naturally. There's something about the way in which we exchange energy which flows. We don't have to take the time to transform it, to digest it. It's just all that extra energy to transform. And so that's what, that's the, the reason I think blanket is just because it, it was the weight aspect. It's the weight of carrying that thing around. And there is also the freedom. There, there is the freedom that it gives us. It, it's in a very uh, poor uh, metaphor, but in a lot of ways, but there is, if you, if you refine the image from blanket into ever more immaterial substance. It is this kind of a field of effect that exists around and, and between us. And I feel like much of the way in which we come at philosophy or in general, the words we hear others speak, which purport to tell us some wisdom about the world or how we should be, that phrase, how, whatever you wanna call it, religion or philosophy or government or politics or third grade home economics class, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just someone communicating to you something about the state of the world and the way they feel like you should act within it. So a lot of times what this seems to be is something like the image, I always go to surfing. I, I'm, I've never surfed in my life, okay? I've, I've jumped on a wakeboard every now and then, like it just a few, but I've, I'm just always captivated by it. But uh, to learn how to surf, I can come at it a lot of different ways, but I think sometimes what happens, and this goes to the gradient thing again, is we point to the moon and we we do our our damnedest to understand the very nuanced relationship between the moon and the waves, which there is one, no mistake, uh, yet it is so far beyond what I need to understand in order to surf the wave. 
um, it, it's, it's a pacing and a, uh, well, it seems to me that the relevance issue, the, the things, there's the relevance issue. And then this goes to the cleaning your room issue is that the best place to place your attention is not so far beyond where you're interacting with the world, but the interface between your, your proximal capacity to alter it to the good, right? To the actual good. And the further you look beyond that capacity, the more abstract and imaginal that attempt to change it becomes and the more likely it is suffused with its own demise. And, and our, our ability to question wisely that, that capacity that's always present within us is the thing I, I love to cultivate within myself and be able to transfer to my children, if at the very least just my children. It's just enormously complex and very difficult. Uh, did he say... Put. Oh, yeah. Beautifully Thank put. You. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. Thank you both for granting my questions. <laughs> Adrian, I liked what you said very much on contradiction. Uh, it makes me think we have 115 seconds. So <laughs> it's like there's something in Hegel where contradiction is creative, where it creates. But by contradiction there, he does not mean logical contradiction. He means the mm -hmm. contradiction that a tree right now is not the same tree as five minutes from now, that everything with time has a creative aspect. And indeed, Tyler, I think it's so critical to base philosophy for me, what you were describing, I can associate with the Aristotle moment where you apprehend that substance, form, and essence come together to make that a bookcase, the raw phenomenological experience of the immediate, as opposed to some disembodied uh, form. Now, I've come to be convinced by form, Plato doesn't mean what a lot of people mean, but it's a different discussion. Platonists tend to be more idealistic, so generally, think, but basing it in that phenomenological wonder of the, um, like, here, the apprehension, the way the thought unfolds in the immediacy and paying attention to that, I think is so important because you're right. There's this question of what should we invest in as being worth transformative? Like what, you know, you have to discern what transformations are worth one's discernment and, and you know, one's time and energy to put into, which in of itself is an act of thinking, right? But I think it's a very good bet to base it in that raw phenomenological experience. Uh, and yeah. I think children are a good example of that. Well, okay, so I think this, I'll try to squeeze this in as quick as we can, right? Like what's going on there with the Platonists and the idealists and literally everyone who listens to some wise man speak is that the wise man is issuing something which makes sense, something which stands out, it's unique, it captures our attention, it's an anomaly of some kind, but we can't grasp it in its totality. Some of it's bullshit, some of it's very good, right? But we can't grasp it in its totality. And in our efforts to move towards it, it's forever beyond our reach, which puts it on the other side of that question, which is the infinite and the absolute. And so our tendency to fill that space, it can yes. be anything. It can literally be like anything. So idealism becomes more potent even than Plato. All right, that was the sound effect right there. Now back to the big group. Yeah, that was a blast. We had a like an hour dance party. It was amazing. Yeah, we played great. such great music. Marvin Gaye, the, the the Four Tops. We went through Motown. It was a blast. Was really we great. It was dance. amazing. Really great, Tim. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome. I hope everybody had uh, had a had a worthwhile time, and we're still in it here. So we have about twenty minutes left to go. As it turns out most of the participants who were initially scheduled to be part of this who weren't in the network didn't end up coming in 
so actually we're here as uh, and obviously michelle you know you've experienced a lot of this somewhat vicariously through daniel and you've been i feel like you're 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 kind of in 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 presence sort of part of things you know obviously the account is og rose after all what i will do though is open this up to to tyler because uh this is one of my favorite things to do just to share a little bit of his experience in in the process and then after tyler's brought his expression to a close let's just consider this an open dialogue in the mode of free form but with the intention to share some of the themes we've experienced together and to bring them into the to the weaving hole so um over to you tyler so we're we're approaching ever more closely uh, a sort of ideal I have in my head, I, an ideal that seems to exist in a lot of people's heads of this uh, notion of good communication, of, of rightful communication, the ability to, to actually hear and understand and be understood. And actually getting to that point in the context of all the kinds of things that we have to address not just in the abstractions, but in the practicalities of life and the tension that exists between the doing of those two things in the realm of language alone. Uh, I'm, well, there's an aliveness to, there's an aliveness here, which is, I think is representing a kind of edge of creation. That's what it feels like to me that there's an aspect of what we're doing that is meaningful enough to attune me to it, all right? So it becomes something important to attend to. So to that effect, uh, my experience in this now, well, it, it's almost always including an element of returning to a kind of home, which I have found here, which is something like, the comfort of understanding that there's, well, that there is understanding here, right? So you can let a little bit of your defenses and guard down. And there's a kind of naturalness to certain interactions that I think facilitates that. One of the, so it, it seemed like it was a bit of a presentation uh, prepared that you two had considered these thoughts. Um, I, you, I think you do this a lot, though, don't you? I, I haven't had the chance to really explore your podcast, but um, I, I have heard like one or two intros and it. You guys have this, you have it as a, as a way of being now together. Um, it's distinctive and I enjoy it. Um, e even the whole speaking at the same time thing, right? Like that's, that's an interesting, well, perhaps literal and metaphorical demonstration, right? of the ways in which I'd like to understand the notion of conversation. H how is it that you can have multiple voices speak at once and have it harmonize, have it come together? How, how can the thoughts and the ideas behind them come together? And there's pontification in this from time to time, I think, when the force of the ideas that exist within us need to be expressed. Right? There's, there's a, this is a, a an intense feeling that we are not being heard. And I wonder beyond the contents of this Zoom call, how many people are not heard? And I wonder how it is that the 
capacities which are demonstrated here and the patterns which are being sought after can be extended outwards in some ways. This is partly, I think, what was embedded within the Enlightenment goal, the idea that you can educate people towards some realm of goodness it's by sharing that we transform each other. I believe this is true. I do. I'm always skeptical and dubious of the how, though. It's so, it's, the word that comes to mind is evanescent, ephemeral. There's some other E words, perhaps. There's, there's something about the nature of it which is inherently slippery. And uh, I, yeah. So, uh, Tim, you unmuted. That was good. Yeah, gra grab it, grab it. I'm, I'm, I think I'm about to wander somewhere. So. Hey, well, I mean, uh, given the context of our last uh, session, about Michael Levin's work, Eternal Life and Biological Robots with Bioelectricity. You just mentioned E-words. <clears throat> you know, lightning is ephemeral. And so that was, I really just had one E. That was pretty much it. Um, but uh, I, at this point, I would like to, um, Tom, if you would be able to share a little bit of your experience in our conversation and what you felt came through there maybe as it meets the moment now sure thank you tim so i want to start with where we finished actually tim brought in this idea of the way in which we are present with each other and i think when you ask the how question, Tyler, that is where it starts. And it's not really a how, it's kind of like it precedes the how and it's just this here-ness and now-ness and the way we're holding each other. And one of the other core ideas that came through was this idea of spaciousness and how philosophy opens up a space by questioning and pulling apart and constantly stepping back and going into the meta. And so we have this, this presence, this hairness and this nowness, and then through philosophy, we're sort of opening that up into a spaciousness. And Tyler, I think, talked about the aliveness that's here. And it seems as though, and this is one of the ideas that came through for us, a big part about philosophy is bringing us into that aliveness. And once we have that spaciousness and once we've stepped back, that's when we can actually truly come online and sort of reconfigure ourselves and our worlds and our symbols and our relationships from that place of spaciousness and presence and constant reevaluating. And in doing that, we are allowing the truth to come forward sort of like all of the noises dropping back and receding and we begin speaking from that deeper place. And I think Tyler's right to pose the question of how much of this actually translates beyond these spaces. And I think the answer is at the moment very little, but I definitely think that there is an, there's an exponential curve on this type of relating. And I think here we have a very potent pocket of this presence and spaciousness and an aliveness that's arising out of it. 
And I think perhaps very soon, as Tyler was also alluding to, we're going to see more of this energy starting to leak out and animate more and more of the culture. And the, perhaps the final idea that I'll reflect on is Ronya talked about this ability to cut through the bullshit. I won't retell your story, Ronya, <laughs> for many reasons, but just this ability to be with someone in a way where you just get right through. You don't, you don't, you don't need to worry about the formalities and you sort of just go to that place and know and trust that from there, what needs to come forth will come forth. And I think Sam also referred to it as a glitch in the matrix. And perhaps that's what we are here at Voicecraft. We are that glitch in the matrix. There's a question coming for me, um, and maybe I'll just put it here and see who wants to. And the question is, is there a danger in philosophizing and using philosophy as a way to escape reality? Like, and, and is there a sequence of events in which does it have to arise first? It seems obvious as I speak. But I, but I wonder if it's actually done in that way. And I wonder how many philosophers, if you can actually pick it up, like what's the difference of when someone is escaping reality through abstraction or if somebody is just infusing reality and using the abstract to, to enliven more. Like when, when OJ, was, OJ was talking in our group about the tree, about engaging with the tree and the name tree, or, but if, if we forget it's an actual tree, then you're just not, there's no magic. But if you're actually, if you use the concept and you use it to communicate and to, to pass magic to others, so you're, you're creating magic through communication and then it's a different thing, it does something else. So um, I don't know, the question got diluted, but I was just wanting to, to provoke with that. And, that's an excellent question, Adriana. And um, and yes, every Friday at 10 a.m. you can find OG Rose on our YouTube channel. We love to do these presentations. And after 200 times, we, we got the timing down on, on the different things. Um, the question you just asked is why, um, so Mr. Barnes is gonna be pushed and he wrote a tremendous book called The Iconoclast. And we talk a lot about the difference between bad philosophy and good philosophy, which you find in David Hume. And basically when you have a philosophy that is not um, embedded in common life, that is not bed in apprehension, then it becomes a form, frankly, of totalitarianism and destruction. And so that's the issue is you're using transformative philosophy or good philosophy um, has a very life-giving principle. But of course, what's the problem with, you know, Mr. Ebert will talk about this, a problem with a cancer cell is that it doesn't die, right? Life can actually have a problematic dimension, right? It has to be balanced, put in its proper bound, you know, and put in the right order. St. Augustine will talk about how evil is a result of a disordered good, because as a Christian, he'll say, if it was created by God, it must be good. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been created. So evil must be a result of disorder. And what ends up happening is um, it would be a conversation, but what David Hume was very concerned is that um, philosophy was getting out of order of common life. And as a result, it was becoming a force of destruction and common life was being deconstructed as a result. But when we start talking about transformative philosophy, using that phrase that is based on apprehension, that's based in phenomenology, that is based on uh, lived experience, um, it's an entirely different ballgame. And David Hume will also warn that that form of philosophy is actually necessary because if not, outside forces can control you. You're going to get the secondhand smoke of the, uh, the zeitgeist that will just pull you into some sort of uh, totalitarian movement, maybe uh, global capitalism in a manner that 
that makes you lose, you know, you just make your priorities money or something like that. So you have to engage in it. And then another level of it is using in this term of wonder, truth and goodness. But uh, Mr. Barnes wrote a tremendous book on that. And we had an OG Rose conversation on it on the iconoclast. Uh, so no, that's a, that's a marvelous um, comment uh, you make. But it also goes to say, and then I'll just close and pass it to whoever wants to speak. Um, we cannot avoid risk. Like if you take seriously this kind of philosophy that we're talking about, there is always risk. There is no such thing as a life that doesn't have risk. Like you, philosophy as a, you know, I believe philosophy has a necessary component in life, but it's also risky because it could turn into the bad philosophy that then causes all the trouble that David Hume was concerned about. Um, but that goes to show you why um, learning how to think, learning what risk to take, the art of living, how to carry oneself in common life all becomes very important because if you are alive, you are engaging in risk. And the question is, how will you manage that risk? How will you carry that risk? And how will you invest that risk? And then Tyler and our, our group mentioned relevance and how do you determine what to find relevant and to focus on and to make a source of transformation? And basing it um, on the common life or the immediate apprehension seems to be very important to having a life that can then pour out from that, from the bottom up, as opposed to the top down, which seems to be a problematic oppression that uh, Mr. Hume was so concerned on. Yes, yes, which is why, so to, to extend the analogy that I use there, uh, paying too much attention to the nature of the relationship between the moon and the waves and my attempt to learn how to surf is completely irrelevant, right? Doesn't need it. That same process is when a politician seeks everyone's vote all at once. The politician is the moon, right? Like, and the irrelevance is lost in the distance between them. This is what seems to be happening. And, and that what, what steps in to fill that gap is special interest lobbyists with money. So collapsing the hierarchy of that, or in other words, adding a gradient of communication, which correctly distributes the proper actuality of the social space, rather than this kind of fabricated, continually evolving narrative, which is representative of your ability to communicate some like perceived state of things rather than an actuality. That's what we need if we're going to participate together in any system larger than like tribal. And that has, so that has to exist. And that's what the internet is able to provide as a, a hardware layer. It's up to us to create the software on top of it, which utilizes that space properly so that we can have tools which shape us in the same way that we shape them. There's a reciprocity there, which is not deleterious, but is in fact beneficial. And partly that's occurring here. That's, that's I guess, what I'm saying. I, I see shades of that uh, ongoing development of the notion of how we utilize this communication layer. I will just add very quickly to that. The, argue, the, the overarching argument of the conflict of mind is that um, epistemic possibility inevitably comes in conflict with epistemic responsibility. The more you move up the hierarchy of interconnection and the more, and that leads to existential anxiety that then leads to making totalitarianism appealing, uh, getting sucked into totalizing system and creating all these different problems. Uh, because the more interconnected things are, the more your brain feels like it should know things that it cannot know things that it gets pulled away. And that creates a feeling a very um, uh, palate, palatable feeling of that finitude that becomes existentially destabilizing. And under those circumstances, one becomes more vulnerable to manipulation and therefore grounding it. The last paper of that book is Deconstructing Common Life, which is about this David Hume uh, consideration. So I think that's a very good um, analysis that you just put forth. Tyler. Yeah, real quick, just if you think about this, like if you think about the total surface area in the brain of the representational map of what you think you know, that represents the amount of your confidence, right? 
And so the more you think you know, that like the more this space inside you that, that you can rely upon grows, but the world outside is always changing. And that's the danger, right? That's, that's why we're composed of these opponent processing sources, right? That's what keeps you, that's what, it, it keeps your membrane open to such a degree at the appropriate amount that you can define the pace of that energetic exchange. Because crashing is the same amount of energy just done less artfully than, you know, riding the wave. So there, there's, there's that, there's that sensitivity and that skill that we need to figure out how to, to ride the waves that are present for us. Um, and uh, to be frank, I think this is an absolutely uh, nearly impossible task and it will require miracles upon miracles. And, and that, that's, that is in, in an essence of that, which I look for things which stand out to be doing something that previously seemed to be impossible or, or unthinkable or whatever. And um, well, not, not to bring Peter Thiel into this, but he has this point about the notion of how innovation has been too constrained in a certain domain, like the, the technology and uh, computer science and such. But I, I think that's, well, I'm not going to go there now, but. All right. Well, something about how attendant we are to sharing an orientation toward beauty with each other when from one moment to the next one frame to the next one group or person to the next that vantage might be very much different and perhaps a lot further away one of the things that I'm surprised and delighted by because it occurs from perspectives that I don't have access to is whether in these events or some of the local ones we've done recently, just in interactions here and there, there's something altogether very simple about opening the space with a certain integrity to really listening and sharing voice with each other. And just the merest intimations of there being a real exchange that feels different seems to be enough for that feeling of appreciation as that sort of ambient electricity to be there doesn't mean you have to play all the notes in the best way and i think um Maybe that's something I've about the only thing I've done reliably is like stumble through sentences. But to the degree we can hear and appreciate and be there as that ground, you know, the lightning hits it, the ground takes it and we stay in presence and we give that time for that inspiration to come through again, then that opportunity to find that next connection and so develop that relationship with the many voices 
with that maelstrom of energy as it meets the world is that much more possible so it would be nice to bring this to a close now what i will say though is that we haven't heard from the third group so we don't have to include this by the way i can close it up as just before that final piece so all right thank you jesse now i would just like to tie this up then we'll turn the recording off welcome to stick around and continue the conversation so i would just like to say for those of you who are listening to this if indeed this is published then you can go to voicecraft.io slash academy to read about the transformative philosophy course i'm not sure what form that will end up taking there is a sense that we are here trying to understand the way to construct pathways into participation and there are plenty of unknowns here certainly have lots to say about it but for sure the spirit of invitation that's present in that course as well as here now with us all at the network in general you can read about the network at voicecraft.network and applications are open so maybe i'll just leave it at that and say thank you all very much thank you to og rose for joining us i look forward to the next however long we spend together as i bring the recording to the close here you can find links to og rose's youtube channel and writings in the show notes and check out episode 70 the philosophy of no philosophy for more from og rose on this topic thank you to the voicecraft community for making these events possible and the patrons who support this work at patreon.com slash voicecraft 